Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 45, the D20 system and the D6 system. Okay, so we've spent the last month or so looking over games and creators, so I thought we should take an episode to break down a couple of systems that have been utilized by different designers over the years. Today's subjects are not the only ones by any means, and we will be covering more game systems in upcoming episodes, but the two systems we're covering today certainly have changed the industry in their own ways, both positive and negative. And there's no better example of that than the system that's first on today's tour. So let's load up the bus and get the tour started. The D20 system is one that pretty much every gamer should be familiar with. After all, it's been the core system for Dungeons & Dragons since the third edition was released in 2000. In fact, Wizards of the Coast created the D20 system especially for D&D. Jonathan Tweet, Monty Cook, and Skip Williams are the three designers who should get the bulk of the credit for designing the D20 system, though Richard Baker and the man who was president of Wizards at the time, Peter Atkinson, also made contributions to the system. Tweet has jokingly stated on a number of occasions, however, that, quote, the other designers already had a core mechanic similar to the current one when I joined the design team, end quote. So the D20 system works like this. To resolve an action any action, a player rolls a d20 and adds the appropriate modifier to the roll. Those modifiers come from the bonuses granted from one of six core abilities, strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. There are other modifiers that can be figured in based on whether or not the character is skilled in something or how skilled they are, as well as base modifiers that figure in based on level, such as the base attack bonus. That final number, once everything has been rolled and added up, is compared to a difficulty number, also known as the DC, or the armor class, known as AC for combat purposes. If the final number is higher than the DC or AC, then the roll was a success. In the case of a skill check, the check succeeds and the player is able to accomplish the task they were seeking to do, like jump across a large pit or pick a lock. In the case of combat, the attack succeeds and the player then rolls the appropriate damage for the weapon they were using, and the opponent loses those hit points. In the case of a spell, the spell succeeds and the player then follows the spell text to determine what happens next. The important thing to remember here is that every action in a D20 system game hinges on the D20 roll, thus the name of the system. Even though other dice are used for damage rolls, the D20 is still the king. Now, it does need to be mentioned that even though the D20 system has been utilized by a number of different game systems over the years, Wizards has never really considered it to be a universal game system like GURPS or other systems of that type. Instead, both Wizards insiders and writers outside of the Wizards bubble have portrayed the D20 system to be more like the basic role-playing system from Chaosium, which we covered in last week's episode. There's a reason for that, and we're going to head off into the proverbial weeds here for a few minutes so I could try to explain it to you. So the basic idea behind the D20 system was similar to that of open source software. Wizards created the base program, but with an understanding that so long as certain guidelines are followed, other creators can utilize the system for their own projects and ideas. 
Now, as you probably know, open source software had been a thing pretty much since the invention of the home computer, but open source gaming systems weren't. At least, not until Wizards came out with the D20 system. Now, the key to this are two documents, the open game license and the system reference document. This is going to be where we probably get a little techno babble heavy, so I do apologize in advance. The open game license is the public copyright license portion of the agreement and is open for use by other developers so they can use the D20 system with some modifications for their own products. The OGL, as it's called for short, specifically identifies two form of content, and I'm reading this directly from the OGL itself. Open game content. The game mechanic and includes the methods, procedures, process, and routines to the extent such content does not embody the product identity as in an enhancement of or the prior art and any additional content clearly identified as open game content by the contributor and means any work covered by this license, including translations and derivative works under copyright law, but specifically excludes product identity. Product identity is defined as... Product and product line names, logos and identifying marks including trade dress, artifacts, creatures, characters, stories, storylines, plot, thematic elements, dialogue, incidents, language, artwork, symbols, designs, depictions, likenesses, formats, poses, concepts, themes and graphic, photographic and other visual or audio representations, names and descriptions of characters, spells, enchantments, personalities, teams, personas, likenesses and special abilities, place, locations, environments, creatures, equipment, magical or supernatural abilities or effects, logos, logos, symbols, or graphic designs, and any other trademark or registered trademark. Whew. Okay, so I'm not a trademark or copyright lawyer, but what I've been able to figure out through my research for this episode is that the OGL basically allowed creators to utilize the D20 system, but made it clear that each publisher was responsible for their own names and trademarks, and utilizing branded material would be a violation of the agreement. So yeah, you definitely want a lawyer on your team if you were going to get into this. Now, I need to point out that there have been three versions of the OGL. Version 1 was the original, which came out with 3rd edition D&D in 2000. It also had a system reference document that came along with it, which we'll discuss in a minute, which allowed third-party publishers to create and publish material compatible with D&D 3rd edition. It was also this document that allowed Paizo Publishing to create and release Pathfinder once Wizards released D&D 4th Edition in 2008, as they were sticking to the rules for the 3rd edition of the game and kept everything, as they say, according to Hoyle. So when Wizards released 4th Edition D&D in 2008, they also released a new license. It was a lot more restrictive and is called the Game System License. Needless to say, there weren't a lot of folks who dug the GSL, and since, by its own wording, the original OGL was irrevocable, folks just kept using it and sticking to the 3rd edition, 3.5 edition rules, just like Paizo did. Wizards got the hint, and when 5th edition came out in 2016, they dropped a new system reference document and went back to a newer, updated version of the OGL, which they call version 1.0a. Not too many changes between 1.0 and 1.0a, mostly legal ease. But what we've seen since that change is an increase in third-party materials coming out for this edition of D&D. It's what allowed the team at Critical Role to release their own campaign setting for D&D several years ago and to publish a revised edition that's available for pre-order on their site now. Of course, those sales convinced Wizards to team up with Matt Mercer to produce a couple of books under the Wizards banner, but I digress. 
Okay, I mentioned the system reference document a couple of minutes ago, so let's stay in these weeds and sort that out before we continue on. The system reference document is, simply put, a reference for the mechanics of a role-playing game's mechanics, in this case D&D, that are licensed under the OGL for other publishers to use to make material compatible with the game. Wow. For D&D 3rd Edition, 3.5, and 5th Edition, the SRDs were pretty open and allowing, much like the OGLs they were released as a part of. For D&D 4th Edition, for whatever reason, Wizards decided to get more strict, and the SRD provided only some concepts and tables from the 4th Edition product that third-party creators were allowed to use. Look, I, I think about it like this. When 3rd Edition came out, the OGL saw a ton of third-party publishers decide to get into the business of producing materials for D&D. I mean, why not? Since you could attach your product to the most popular and best-selling role-playing game in the world. Wizards probably noticed that there was a lot of profit out there that they weren't making and made the classic overcorrection with 4th edition. And those floodgates of 3rd edition shut, leaving a mere trickle of third-party material coming out. And I might note a whole lot of pissed-off gamers who didn't like 4th edition, but that's another show. So, Wizards swung back in the other direction. But I have to note there's a bit of a caveat to this. See, in addition to the OGL for 5th edition, third-party creators can get access to another license option by choosing to publish their materials through the Dungeon Masters Guild storefront, which is, of course, run by Wizards. Now, there's an advantage to this, as that additional license allows those creators to create works specific to Wizards of the Coast controlled intellectual property, like the Forgotten Realms, Eberron, Ravenloft, or Magic the Gathering. The caveat to that deal is that even though the creator can name their sale price for the product, Wizards gets 50% of the profits. Now, I was just about to head back into discussing the history of the D20 system when I remembered one more license that we should probably talk about since we're talking legalese here. It's called the D20 System Trademark License. It was another big player in the beginning of the D20 system and spreading the gospel of D20. Wizards created the D20 System Trademark License to allow third-party publishers to use some of Wizards' trademark terms, as well as a distinctive logo that would help gamers identify the product as being compatible with D&D. But, publishers had to agree to exclude character creation and advancement rules, they had to apply certain notices to their work, and they had to adhere to what was termed as acceptable content policy. And we'll talk a bit more about that in a bit. All D20 system trademark licensed products had to clearly state that they required the core D&D books from Wizards of the Coast to be used, and they had to use the OGL in order to use the content they were allowed to use. Of course, some publishers decided the restrictions of the D20 Systems license were too much and chose to only use the OGL. Mutants and Masterminds, which we discussed in last week's episode, is a perfect example of this, as Green Ronin Publishing wanted a D20 game, but the creators knew that trying to follow the D20 System license would not allow them to do what they wanted. So, they dropped the D20 license, followed the OGL, which allowed them to use parts of the D20 system that they wanted to without being beholden to all of it, and without having to force their consumers to purchase Wizards of the Coast product in order to play the game. Okay, so now with the legal stuff out of the way, let's look at how the D20 system worked out. Look, when the D20 system first came out, there was a boom within the industry. I mean, D&D 3rd Edition took the role-playing industry by storm, 
and for the best-selling game of all time, that's really kind of saying something. The industry hadn't really seen anything quite like it since... Well, since D&D was invented, if we're going to be honest. Reviewers across the board were raving about how much easier this system made it to play the game. And other developers realized that if the D20 system could do that for D&D, well, hell, they'd need to get on board or get lost. Atlas Games, Chaosium, Alderac Entertainment, Fantasy Flight, White Wolf, Goodman Games, Green Ronin, Mongoose Publishing... Troll Lord Games were among the many who either applied the D20 system to their own properties or produced materials that were D&D compatible. And by the way, that list doesn't count the dozens of much smaller imprints who produced a couple of books here and there in an attempt to take advantage of the D20 boom and bring some much-needed capital into their accounts. Nothing wrong with trying to make a little honest bank, my friends. Wizards realized they were onto something, too, and took the D20 system beyond D&D. They acquired the license for the Star Wars role-playing game and applied the D20 system to it. In 2002, they created the D20 modern role-playing game, then created the Urban Arcana campaign setting in 2003 to go along with it. As if that weren't enough, they dropped the D20 future setting in 2004, the D20 past setting in 2005, and the Dark Matter setting in 2006. D20 Modern did have some impact on the gaming world at large. For the record, it wound up with its own OGL and SRD, but they were pretty much the same as the ones for D&D, so we're just going to leave that there. The impact was that White Wolf used the D20 Modern rules to crank out a version of Gamma World in 2006. However, most writers and gamers see 2003 or 2004 as the beginning of the end for the D20 craze. And there's one pretty big reason for that other than the absolute glut of D20 stuff that hit the market. In 2003, Valar Project released the Book of Erotic Fantasy, which utilized the D20 system license, the OGL, and the SRD to tie the project into D&D. Wizards reacted by changing the D20 system license, adding a clause that all publications must meet, quote, community standards of decency, end quote. Valar responded by removing all direct references to D&D before publishing the book and released it under the OGL exclusively. Now, there are those of you who would say, and rightfully so, that Wizards was merely acting in defense of their product. After all, if you allow one company to start producing erotic fantasy for your game, where do you draw the line? I mean, what comes next? Well, I mean, there is the theory out there that says if it exists, there's porn of it, but... I'm digressing again. Third-party creators had a different response to this, and I can't disagree with them either. Their fear was that Wizards was beginning to take the steps to further consolidate their discretionary power over what would be considered legitimate D20 material. Their thought was, basically, where does the control stop? Look, most of them understood the stance on the erotic fantasy book, but they were concerned about how far Wizards would be willing to go and more importantly, how much they'd be willing to change the D20 license to implement the changes they wanted to make. So a whole lot of creators within the industry started getting really concerned. Then, Wizards did something nobody saw coming. At Gen Con 36 in August of 2003, Wizards released D&D 3.5 Edition. So while they called it more of a cleaning up of 3rd Edition rules, what resulted was that a whole lot of third-party publishers were stuck with a whole lot of material that was now basically obsolete. 
And the even worse part was that a great deal of that material hadn't even been released to market yet. On top of that, there was no update for the D20 license trademark. And as I sort of snarkily noted a few minutes ago, the market was way overflowing with D20 material, and frankly, there was a lot of it that was subpar, primarily because it had been rushed out to take advantage of the D20 boom. So, what we got next were some D20 publishers that went out of business, while others just checked out their legal options. Some, like Paizo a few years later, realized they could use the OGL and basically create their own games, which they did while others decided to experiment with other systems. Companies like White Wolf, which hadn't ever fully committed to the D20 movement, reverted back to their tried-and-true systems, and while they lost some of the new audience they'd picked up, they managed to keep enough of them, plus gain returning fans, to keep their place in the market secure. Needless to say, the majority of the criticisms with the OGL are directed at the D20 system license. Most critics point to the narrowly defined rules that publishers had to follow, and the fact that Wizards was able to change the rules when Valar was about to publish something they didn't like was concerning. But we could spend hours bashing Wizards for their decisions around the D20 system. Instead, I'd like to end the look at the D20 system by focusing on how good of a system it really is. And more to the point, I'd like to note that for many a gamer, it can be argued that it probably saved D&D's position at the top of the gaming chain. I can argue that because of the increasing popularity of computer and console games at the turn of the century, combined with the difficulty of teaching new gamers how to play 2nd edition AD&D. With 3rd edition's streamlined rules and easy to learn character creation, old school gamers still got the options they wanted, while new gamers didn't feel like they had to take a college course in statistics to figure out how to play the game. And that's huge. Because if Wizards had decided to keep the old system in place, it's entirely possible we'd be talking about another game being at the top of the charts instead D&D. Look, I said possible. There's still the chance Wizards might have come up with something, but give me this one. Okay, so let's change lanes and check out our other topic for today's show, the D6 system. Creation of the D6 system goes to various writers at West End Games, and that creation is an interesting story all its own. The D6 system first made an appearance, though not in its finished form, in the 1986 game Ghostbusters, a frightfully cheerful role-playing game, which was designed by Sandy Peterson, Lynn Willis, and Greg Stafford. That system was expanded upon a year later when Greg Kostikian, Curtis Smith, and Bill Slavichek wrote the Star Wars The Role-Playing Game. And for a decade, the D6 system was utilized primarily for the Star Wars game and all the various supplements West End Games released for it. By 1996, however, West End Games was looking for something to give it an edge in the gaming market, as well as a much-needed infusion of cash. George Strayton wrote the D6 system, the customizable role-playing game, which West End then released. This was the first time the D6 system had been published without being tied to a specific license or property, and that was the big selling point. For those who loved the Star Wars game, this system would, theoretically, give them the ability to take that system and apply it to whatever type of game they wanted to play. Medieval, Western, Apocalyptic, you name it. Of course, West End couldn't resist picking up a couple more licensed product to tie into their system. Indiana Jones Adventures was reworked from its original Masterbook system and released in 1996, while Men in Black was released in 1997 to take advantage of the movie release. West End would get one more game in with the D6 system, and that was Hercules and Xena in 1998. 
However, it also modified the D6 system a bit, and this was referred to as the D6 Legend system. Don't worry, we'll get this all sorted out in a minute. But that would be it for West End Games, as they declared bankruptcy shortly thereafter and were acquired by Humanoids Publishing. Now, most of the previous licenses were terminated as a result of the bankruptcy, but Humanoids still had the D6 system, or the Legends system, whichever you're using. And they quickly acquired the license from DC Comics to produce the DC Universe role-playing game, which we discussed in detail two weeks ago. That line ran from 1999 to 2001. Humanoids also applied the D6 system to Cybertroopers, Metabarons, Shatter Zone, and Blood Shadows. However, by November of 2003, the assets of West End Games changed hands again. This time, they wound up in the hands of Purgatory Publishing. Now, they took the PDF version of D6 Adventure, which Humanoids had released just prior to the Blood Shadows release, and gave it the full once-over, charging Nicola Vertus with writing three hardcover rulebooks for release. The books were actually three separate games, and were D6 Adventure, which covered Wild West, Pulp, Espionage, Low-Powered Superheroes, and other modern or near-modern games. D6 Fantasy, which covered Sword and Sorcery, High Fantasy, and Swashbuckling games. D6 Space, which covered space opera and cyberpunk. By the way, the rules for this version were very similar to the earlier rules for the Star Wars games. During this time, Kapara Publishing licensed the D6 system and released Godsend Agenda, which was a superhero style of game. In 2007, Septimus was announced. However, its release was delayed until 2009. In 2009, the D6 system got an OGL of its own, which was basically the same OGL Wizards of the Coast used for 3rd edition D&D. This meant that the D6 system was open and available for use by other publishers. And as I mentioned a moment ago, Septimus was released formally on August 13, 2009, and was the first official release of material under what had been named the Open D6 label. West End Games was sold one final time. In April of 2016, it was sold to Nocturnal Media. Nocturnal made all of the D6 books and materials available for purchase on DriveThruRPG and announced the licensing deal with Gallant Knights Games for a forthcoming release. That release was Zorro the Role-Playing Game, which came out in 2020. As of this recording, Nocturnal is still working on a second edition of the D6 system, though an early version of it was the basis for the Zorro game. I guess we need to stay tuned to see what's next for the D6 system. Okay, so since we did the history of the system first, why don't we dig into how the D6 system works? Characters in the D6 system are defined by attributes and skills. Most D6 system games utilize anywhere from 6 to 8 attributes, and the names and numbers can vary. Now, we've discussed attributes and skills in enough games to this point that I don't think we need to define what they are here. Just know that they're similar to what you're accustomed to in other games. What makes them different in the D6 system is how they're rated. D6 uses a system of dice and pips. Dice means the number of dice you would roll, and pips means a one or two point bonus you add to the roll to determine your result. Obviously, the more dice and pips you have in a rating, the better your character is at that skill or attribute. For example, an agility of 3d plus 2 is better than an agility of 2d plus 1. Yeah, I know. Duh. But I wanted to explain it so we were all on the same page. Lighten up, Francis! 
What? No Stripes fans? Damn. So to resolve actions, the player rolls dice and has a difficulty number that they're rolling against. But there are two types of difficulties, standard and opposed. I'm pretty sure you've got this one figured out, but since I've got the time, let's go over it anyway. A standard difficulty is when the GM has the player roll the dice for a particular attribute or skill. Once the dice and pips are added, the GM has a difficulty number they're looking at, and they can also apply bonuses or penalties to the player's roll. If the roll exceeds the difficulty, the roll was a success. If not, well, you know. Opposed rolls are one player versus another, or an NPC, which is actually the typical opposed roll. In this case, both involved parties roll the dice for the particular skill or attribute. If the first player's roll is higher, they win and everything is considered resolved, because the first player in this case would be the PC. If the NPC equals or beats the PC's roll, they win and things might have to continue. Hey, I don't make the rules, I just report them. Now, second edition is adding something a little bit new to the mix. It's called a wild die, and it's one of the dice rolled in any check. If this die rolls a 6 on an initial roll, it's considered to have exploded, which means you get to add to the 6 to the total, plus roll it again and add that result. The second roll is also a 6. You continue until you don't roll a 6 on that die. Now, for every positive, there's a negative. If you roll a 1 on the wild die, not only do you not get to add it, you also ignore the highest result out of your regular dice. Then, re-roll the wild die. If your luck is bad enough to roll another, this is a critical failure, and that's not going to end well for your character. Now, there are ways to improve rolls in the game. Players may spend character points and fate points. Obviously, there are limits to how many can be spent at a given time, and the rules spell out specifically how many for certain situations, but it's easy to just assume that no more than two points can be spent on any roll. And here's how they work. A spent character point adds another wild die to the roll, but you ignore a one on that die, so it can only help you, not hurt you. A spent fate point doubles the number of dice you roll. Pretty nice. But it should be noted that characters don't have a lot of either of those points, and earning more isn't easy, so spending them for rolls should be something that's done in extreme cases. Okay, so we've covered the basics of the D6 system, but I wanted to cover some of the D6 variants before we stop today. The version that I've been talking about to this point is also known as the D6 Classic System because it's basically the same system with a few tweaks that's been used since way back in the 1980s. Now, the Legend System, which I referred to a bit ago, handles die rolls a little bit differently. First off, pips aren't a part of the system, and rather than adding everything together, you consider any roll of a 3 through 6 as a success. There was also a variant in the Star Wars live-action adventure game where you rolled a single d6 and added the result to your skill or attribute, then compared it to a difficulty, which made that part similar to other variants, and to the original for that matter. It's the single die in the roll that makes it different. Wow. So my brain is full of game system information and I'm on the verge of a system overload, so I think this is a good spot to end our tour for today. Next week, well, I haven't decided what we're gonna discuss next week. I've got a couple of ideas percolating, but I don't wanna to commit to one of them just yet. So next week's episode will be a little surprise from me to you.
Hell, next week's episode is probably going to be a surprise to me, if we're being completely honest. So this week, I want to put the spotlight on another Kickstarter. This one comes from the folks at Awfully Queer Heroes. You might remember when I talked about them a while back that I mentioned that in addition to producing a live play podcast, they are also game designers. Well, they've got something quite interesting they'd like to bring to the market, and I'm proud to help them promote it. It's a module for 5th edition D&D called Adventures in ADHD. It's designed to help players learn more about ADHD, and rather than be a technical slog like reading the DSM-5 can be, it's a fun adventure in the Feywild. Look, I'm not even playing D&D right now, and you can bet your ass I'm getting a copy of this. So if you're interested, the Kickstarter began on the 22nd of March. Sorry for just now getting to it. I'm such a bad friend. So head over to Kickstarter and search for Awfully Queer Heroes. Like I said, the module is called Adventures in ADHD, and I'm sure you can search for it by its title as well. And I want to wish the folks at Awfully Queer Heroes luck in getting this funded, because as someone who works in the mental health field, which I do, it's my full-time job, I think we could use more stuff like this to teach the rest of the world about mental health and mental illness. Okay, so enough preaching from me. On with the wrap-up. The music for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for royalty-free music you can use for your next project. I caught some flack from folks because I got a little behind on getting the YouTube rebroadcast of this podcast up late. I'm sorry about that. It uh, takes twice as long to upload the video to YouTube as it does to upload to Anchor for the podcast. So when I'm presented with the choice to play with my cute, cuddly grandson or sit in front of my computer for another hour, well, I like you guys, but he's way cuter. Sorry. But I will try to be better about it moving forward. As always, you can follow us on Facebook, Role Playing History Podcast, Twitter, at Role Playing P. We have the YouTube channel, Role Playing History Podcast. You know what to do when you get there, trust me. Our email, if you are so inclined, is roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. Next week, I have no idea what the hell I'm going to do, but I can assure you that one way or the other, it's going to be something you won't want to miss. But that's next week. And until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're Roleplaying History.